when I was in college, my first poetry teacher ever, I think I was talking about a poem about a poet and I said, they make it look so easy or something like that. It's so effortless for this poet. And my teacher said, that is the sign of a master. Book Society Podcast. Hello. Welcome. My guest today is Carrie Fountain. And you know Carrie Fountain because you heard the episode we did with Maggie Smith where we talked about Carrie Fountain's amazing book, The Life. So Carrie Fountain's poetry has appeared in Poetry Magazine, The American Poetry Review, and a little outfit called The New Yorker. You may have heard of it. Her first poetry collection, Burn Lake, was a National Poetry Series winner. That's pretty cool. She has two collections from Penguin Random House, the aforementioned The Life, and her first collection with them, which was Instant Winner. Her young adult novel, I'm Not Missing, was published in 2018. And in 2019, she was named Poet Laureate of the State of Texas. That's pretty cool. You're the first Poet Laureate we've had on the podcast. Thank you for being here. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So the book that Carrie Fountain chose today is God of Nothingness by Mark Wunderlich. So the first question we usually start with is just why, Carrie Fountain, did you pick this book? I loved this book. It really blew me away. I read a lot of poetry and it's hard to choose a book to have a long conversation about when I teach collections of poetry to graduate students or anyone, mostly graduate students, you really have to be conscientious about the book you choose because when you're reading a book of poems and thinking about it as a teacher or someone who's going to have a conversation about it, books like this one by Mark Wunderlich, you can approach this book from so many different entry points. And I so admire that as a poet reading another poet's book but also as someone who has conversations about poetry with other people, be it students or you right now, it's very exciting to come across a book like that because it's like a book that I want to know what you thought of it. It's at once very philosophical and intellectual and smart, but it never keeps its reader at a distance. Over the course of the book, I felt more and more intimacy with the poems and with the voice in the book, that it just kept opening in this way. You can start at the stage where you like pick up a book and you start reading the first poem, you know, you don't have any commitment to this poem. It's like a West Side Story, you know, you're like seeing it across the arena at the dance and you're like, that looks like a good book. I'm going to try to get a better look at that. And, you know, by the end of this book, we're like making out behind the bleachers. Maria. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like so far into it. And that's something rare and wonderful in a book. So that's why I wanted to talk to you about it. And that's why I want to celebrate it as well. I think it's a really fabulous collection. And to be honest, I wasn't tremendously familiar with Mark Wunderlich's work before this book. I happened to meet him this summer. And I got to read with him, actually. And he read poems from this book. And immediately I was like, oh, my gosh, I've got to get that and read it. it. Took me a minute to actually get to reading it, but I devoured it when I did. Yeah, I'm so glad you recommended it because I don't think I ever would have found it otherwise, but I really enjoyed it. It felt to me like I was remembering his life. It's kind of autobiographical, right? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it's presented as if it is autobiographical. 
And it even has that jag. There's like a series or it's one poem in series about autobiography and writing autobiography into a book of poems or writing autobiography in general. And to me, that starts so many conversations in my mind about the nature of poetry and autobiography and the way that in general, people approach books of poetry unless they are sort of distinctly in persona or they are very much in a third person or doing something where point of view perhaps isn't even one of the tools or aspects of the work itself. Otherwise, I think people hear a voice in poetry and they assume it is the voice of the poet and they hear about experiences in poetry and they assume that those are the experiences of the poet. And it is interesting to me because I don't think that is an assumption that is necessarily made when approaching a book of fiction, for example, or a novel or even a song, perhaps. It's just a very interesting aspect about poetry. It's always been very interesting to me. And my sense of why that is There's a number of reasons, but it is the reason that I am drawn to poetry to begin with, in that my favorite experiences with poetry are experiences where I feel that intimacy and I feel that voice speaking to me, the reader, and that getting closer and closer as you go along through a book. And I think this book does that very well. And in in the middle of the book, it also becomes kind of self-conscious about the idea of writing autobiography. And I thought that was a lovely turn in the book. That struck me too. And that's so hard to do honestly. And I feel like his tone is, it's not lighthearted. Like that's not the right word for it. Some of the material in here is very dark and clearly his life as a gay man, I think about a generation older than us. So I was born in 1980. I feel like he was like 10 years older than me. Because his experience of being a gay man seemed very different than the experience of my friends who are gay and very different of people who are 10 years younger than me. You mean none of your gay friends were hit on by Jeffrey Dahmer in a bar? (laughs) To my knowledge, none of my friends were hit on by Jeffrey Dahmer in a bar, which brings us to an interesting thing about this book and about the fact that you chose this book that happened in Madison or somewhere in either in Minnesota or Wisconsin where Jeffrey Dahmer hunted. When you picked this book, I had just gotten back from the Frozen River Film Festival, which takes place every year in Winona, Minnesota, a town I had never heard of and had never been to. And it is now COVID time, so I don't get invited to places like I used to. I usually would say Minnesota in February. No, thank you. But I went. Winona is this charming, beautiful little town that I love, and I'm going to go back there to finish my book. I love it. But this tiny town in Minnesota is where Mark Wunderlich is from. He grew up there and I did some research on him, particularly about the Jeffrey Dahmer poem, because I wondered if that was real. It is in the Winona Register. He talks about it. And this was a real experience that he had. And he found out later, like he recognized the person from the news. This really happened to him, apparently. Right. That sort of brush with a fate that did not befall you, that could have befallen you. That experience is in and of itself one That is so beautifully accounted for in that poem. But I think also, if I remember correctly, weren't there like a few people who escaped from, at least one who was like a young guy who escaped from Jeffrey Dahmer and went to the police and the police were like, that doesn't sound like anything. 
That sounds like weird gay stuff is what they said. And then Jeffrey Dahmer was, of course, able to go on and yeah. I think everyone knows who Jeffrey Dahmer is, but just in case, he was a serial killer in the Midwest who hunted gay men and then ate them. His body count was in the teens, I think. I seem to remember Jeffrey Dahmer being apprehended when I was like a freshman in high school. That's why I thought that Mark was probably about 10 years older than me, is that I was not old enough to go to a bar while Jeffrey Dahmer was out of prison. And then, yeah, some of the other experiences he has, like I said, I feel like I remembered his life by reading this book. I'm sure it was not hard for him. Winona is a lovely place and it's super progressive now. I don't know if 40 years ago it was the same way. It probably wasn't easy for him as a Midwestern gay man to be who he was at that time in that place. I just got a sense of that from this book. I don't know if there's anything specifically that speaks to that. I don't really know much about his autobiography other than I know that he grew up in a rural area and on a farm, I believe. I also met him and I follow him on Instagram and he is like the most cosmopolitan, amazing person. His Instagram is just like this pristine kind of, it is Liz Lemon. I want to go to there. (laughs) Every time you post something, I'm like, I want to go to there. A very like strong aesthetic. And he is just kind of an impeccable person. He just looks like your coolest professor who shops at stores that you can't afford to shop in. That's the vibe I get from Mark Wunderlich. You use the word lighthearted, but then not. And I think that is something that is also to be really praised in this book. So much about the experience of reading poetry is the experience of taking in the tonal qualities, the tone where things register. And as poets, we sort of achieve that by use of diction. Are we speaking in high diction? Are we speaking in really colloquial diction? Are we mixing the two? How we're putting together sentences? There are all these things that go into making the tone come to life. And in this book, in some ways, lighthearted is kind of perfect because it's like lightheartedness on its way to a heavy hit. So the first poem in the book is called Wonderlick. The first few lines I'll read. The name means odd. The name means queer. It can denote an odd fish. It suggests a queer chap. Sometimes it means capricious. So it goes on and it sort of in this vein, the name means, it means, it means. It can mean he prefers cats. It can mean he has a gnome tattooed near the hair underneath his arm. It means he loves Christmas like a simpleton. It means makes sushi out of spam. Like those kind of notes woven into heavier lines. I feel like it brings forth this very full voice in these poems. And I'm just hooked into this book by that first poem. I couldn't put it down. Who would stop reading after that poem? And he does such a great job at the end of poems as well. A kind of perilous land for poets, how to end a poem. I think he really does well at that. It's funny that you think of that as a perilous land because Maggie Smith, when she was on this podcast said that the end of your book, The Life, The Spirit Asks, she said that it had the best ending of any book ever in history. Oh, well, she needs to read War and Peace. I believe that is the <laughs> book in history. But she loved it. We talked about it for a little bit, and I agree that it's a great ending. We read that poem on the podcast. And I was going to ask you about endings. So one of the things that I do as a prose writer, and you're also a prose writer, is you get a rough draft, and then 
you sort of want to make the paragraphs and the ideas connect. At least this is something that I go through. So I'll have a paragraph that has a very definite idea. And then what I'll often find myself doing is adding a sentence that connects this paragraph to the next one. So the reader keeps reading. Mark Wunderlich has these great endings of poems that push you to the next page. Is that something that you think about when you're putting together your anthology? Did you make changes to poems or did you put them in an order and that's just the order they were in? I think that this is something that is so endlessly fascinating to me. The idea of how poets put together their collections of poems, because I'm sure there are many poets who are working on this level, but I have never once finished a poem and thought, you know, what that would be great for is the beginning of this next poem. I'm just not doing that. I don't know if many poets are, but you're right. There's something about the way these poems are organized, which is in and of itself kind of an art form. When you're writing a novel, it's a destination and there's points along the way. And when you're writing a book of poems, it's like whatever emotional resonance or tonal accumulations or whatever you are sort of feeling shapes the book. All you have are these individual pieces. It's not like, okay, clearly this poem goes first because that happens first. And then this happens, and that this poem goes next because that happens next, as you would in a novel. And there are many ways, of course, of using time in a novel, but a typical kind of narrative is arranged chronologically or something. And so I think that's one of the things that fascinates me most in reading books of poetry, thinking about how a poet has put them together. But I agree with you thinking about when poems end and what comes next. All of those poems at the beginning of this book, there's that poem, Wonderlick, and then there's a poem called A Driftless Sun. And the first lines of that poem are, it came to me to sell the family farm, shift its failures to a man who planned to occupy the place for recreation. And then it moves on to a poem called Ha Ha Little Hunchback, which seems to be about a character that after these first two poems, we're kind of oriented in that place and time. The idea of, again, this poet who is this age and who is in academia going home to this place that in some ways, like throughout this book, kind of occupies a past. That's where that is. I think that is something that just happens all through this book. There's this kind of tension between the speaker in the poems and where that speaker has come from and how that speaker is kind of reconciling the past with the present. The Driftless Sun is one of my favorite ones. And that is because, so that word driftless is, I think, just a beautiful word, but it also is the name of the region that Winona, Minnesota occupies. So that part of the Mississippi River Valley is called the Driftless Region because it's the part of the valley that the Ice Age did not cover. And so the ecology of that part of the world is the same as it's been for 30,000 years because it never got frozen. And so it's just completely different from everything around it. There's mountains, there's limestone, they have rattlesnakes, they have all these things that you wouldn't find in the tundra of Minnesota all exist in this Driftless Region, which is south of the Twin Cities, I think, approximately, and in the Mississippi River Valley. I learned this because I went to Winona and I kept seeing that word and I've never heard it before. Oh my God. That changes everything, doesn't it? <laughs> but the thing that's so beautiful about that is that if you don't know that, this poem still reads beautifully and the word driftless is just such a nice poetry word. But it has this profound meaning that evokes millennia of change and difference. I mean, if you could describe a person as driftless, 
it has an entirely different meaning. That's wild. That's like a fact that I'm going to take with me and reread this book with perhaps. That's why it was so amazing and interesting for me to read this book is because I know the place that he's coming from. I mean, I don't know it. I spent two days there, but just to have any familiarity with it really helps me understand where he's coming from because it's this beautiful, special place. But when I was there, it was a frozen, I don't think it got above 10 degrees when I was there. It was very harsh. There's also a lot of Native American history there that they did a lot of bad things. This was one of the areas with the smallpox blankets, just all of the atrocities we can think of that were committed against Native Americans. Not that all of them were only committed there, but every brand of them was committed in that region. So it's obviously been a sacred place for a long time. It's so hard to talk about a book of poetry when... Oh, how about we just read A Driftless Sun? Perfect. Okay, so this poem is A Driftless Sun. It came to me to sell the family farm shift its failures to a man who planned to occupy the place for recreation, to hunt the deer that spook and shadow in the pines. My job to consign to another my granddad's stunted grove of walnuts planted against the forester's advice with his hired man, Tiny, who died by stepping in front of a train, though first he roped his dog bare to a nearby tree tacking on a note that read, take care off me. Does anyone remember this fat fact? A loaf of toast and a dozen eggs was Tiny's daily breakfast meal. Give it to me. I'll remember that bit too. I fished that muddy pond just once. Its manure slurry slipped downstream from the Tullius brothers' hogs shot the one buck trophied on my wall whose crippled hoof had slowed him dangerously down. In town again, I pulled the locks off all the doors of the barn. Empty now, October now, the deer not yet come to any harm. So tell me what stuck out to you about this particular poem. I feel like the way the speaker in the poem begins with the kind of responsibility it came to me to sell the family farm. And then he goes into speaking about his granddad to mention that he planted some failed groves of walnuts, which he planted against the forester's advice with his hired man, Tiny, who died. And then he describes how Tiny died. Does anyone remember this fat fact? He asks, a loaf of toast and a dozen eggs was Tiny's daily breakfast meal. Give it to me. I'll remember that bit too. There's just this way that the speaker in that moment asserts his feeling of responsibility for the details of this time and this place. Like, give it to me. I'll take care of that too. As if it's an item, as if it's like, I'll put that in the right place as well. I can't trust the rest of you to actually do it. And I love that sense that the poet becomes that record keeper, memory keeper in that moment, but then goes on. I'll remember that bit. I fished that muddy pond just once. And then I shot the one buck trophied on my wall, whose crippled hoof had slowed him dangerously down. And there's just something about that too, that feels really like that disclosure that the one buck I've shot and who had a crippled hoof and to kind of admit that in this poem. Then in town again, I pulled the locks off all the doors of the barn, empty now, October now, the deer not yet come to any harm to kind of go back 
to end the poem with the deer in the moments and the days and the weeks before hunting season opens. Just such a really masterful, I think, turn at the end of this poem, thinking of where it started to where it ends. And the other thing I would note is that there's a poem that follows called Ha Ha Little Hunchback, which is longer, kind of a very different poem. So ha ha little hunchback, it begins. Ha ha little hunchback, look at him, pretend to trip, teeth in his pocket, ring the doorbell three times and make the children clap. He taught me to run the bandsaw and run the chainsaw. This kind of character, and you're entering to this poem thinking, oh, this is a poem about a town character, right? And then as you read this poem, you realize because of the details, if you were reading this poem in isolation, you wouldn't know this, but like what you were saying earlier about how he's arranged these poems you realize in the middle of the poem that this is the grandfather from the last poem and you get that in the way that like a novel would work right where you pick up information in ways and you go oh that's who that is so he made his money in moonshine sugar made his money making bad luck loans hired a giant everyone called tiny then he became tiny's home and in the previous poem we've heard his hired man is tiny we know how tiny ends his life as well we're talking about the poem, A Driftless Sun, and the masterfulness of that poem. But there is an additional kind of masterfulness in the way that facts in that poem are revealed in the next poem. There's like this cumulative effect in that. The whole book is like that, too. It really gives you these revelations later in the book that affect things that you had earlier in the book. And that's why I think to me, it really felt like memory because it was disjointed, but everything was there. Everything was present, but it was just not in an order. When you're remembering something that you know, you don't need it to be in order because you know the order. When I'm thinking about episodes in my life, I think of an image or a phrase or someone's face, and I just know what that evokes. And if I were to write it down, I would write it down as a linear story. But Mark Wunderlich wrote it down as a series of poems. It's almost eerie what he's done to me, because I feel like I've lived in his head a little bit. I think we started talking about how there's something about this that's charming and then something about it that's kind of uncomfortable. Getting this intimate with someone makes them vulnerable and makes you kind of love them. But it's also very uncomfortable to know someone that well, especially someone you don't actually know. <laughs> yeah. When I was in college, my first poetry teacher ever, I think I was talking about a poem about a poet. And I said, they make it look so easy or something like that. It's so effortless for this poet. And my teacher said, that is the sign of a master. They make it look effortless. And I think that is one of the things that's happening in this book is that you're right. Like in some ways, Wonderlick is almost like enacting the experience of memory itself, the kind of way that it's like, shards in a broken pane of glass and you're sort of putting them together or like putting together a puzzle where one piece goes into place and you go oh wait if that piece goes there then that means this is over here right where the meaning has become clear not over the course of one poem but over the course of a book of poems and that is really remarkable to me about this poem and also just a voice and a way with language that like sustains an entire reading. I don't read books of poetry like this. I really don't. I like to read in the morning and I read through a book of poems, but I read like four poems and then I get started on my own writing, four or five poems in a book until it's done. And this book, I just kept going. Like I'll stop after this next poem. Also, and I just read through it. 
that is one of the things that creates the vehicle for the poem is so comfortable. I'm in the hands of this wonderful poet. And so why would I want to get out of this car? It made me think of what my teacher said about the most masterful poets make it look easy, make it look effortless. I feel the same way. For the record, though, I actually read your book and Goldenrod in one sitting. I felt the same way about all of them. I just, through you and Maggie, have been exposed to a world of poetry that I did not know existed previously. And I'm a fan of poetry, but I think I'm a fan of older poetry and I just didn't know. Okay, wait, I'm going to challenge this. What was your experience of poetry? What is the feeling that is like, oh, this is a whole new world about the poetry you know, Maggie led you to me, I'm leading you to this book. What is it about these three books that you feel is different than like your previous experience of poetry? I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you next week. So thank you very much for joining us. You and I are not going to stop talking, but the audience is not going to hear the next part of this episode until next week. Oh, snap. (laughs) We'll be back next week with Carrie Fountain. We're going to talk about her book, The Life. And I'm going to tell her why poetry that I've read from her and Mark Wunderlich and Maggie Smith is different than poetry I had read previously. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. is a good old-fashioned, what we call a cliffhanger. (laughs) Showmanship. All right. (laughs) 